Welcome to this edition of Bookends, a virtual book club brought to you by the Team Approach. This program is designed so you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then dialogue with them in a discussion group on LinkedIn. This year on Bookends, we are featuring books that can transform, and today we will visit with John Cater, who has written Effective Apology, Mending Fences, Building Bridges, and Restoring Trust. You can access today's recording and all of our Bookends programs at bookendsbookclub.net. Here you can visit our resource blog containing free chapters and other resources provided by authors who are featured on this program. Following our interview today, you are also invited to log into LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. In this LinkedIn group, you can pose questions and discuss issues with your peers. You can dialogue with our bookends featured authors who are members of this group. Invite your friends to join the group and listen and discuss with you. I'm your host, Susan Stan, and I'd like to introduce John Cater, who is the author of over 10 books, including Charles Schwab, How One Company Beat Wall Street and Reinvented the Brokerage Industry. 50 high-impact speeches and remarks, proven words you can adapt for any business occasion, and the New York Times bestseller, Net Ready, Strategies for Success in the E-Economy with Amir Hartman and John Safonis. His career books include The Manager's Book of Questions, 751 Great Questions for Hiring the Best Person, How to Ace the Brain Teaser Job Interview, and 201 Best Questions to Ask on Your Interview. As a corporate ghostwriter, John has distinguished himself as a writing partner to a number of Fortune 1000 executives who credit him for his willingness to embrace the hectic and unpredictable schedules of busy executives. John began his writing career in Washington, D.C. at a high-tech advertising and public relations agency. For the past 30 years, he has been the principal of Cater Communications, providing editorial assistance to dozens of corporate and media clients. John's insights have been featured in more than 100 magazines and newspapers, including the, Ch the Chicago Tribune, Computer World, Working Women, and Business to Business. John has columns in Chief Executive, Registered Rep, and Human Resources Executive. John holds a master's degree in public relations from the American University and an undergraduate degree from Duke University. John was born in Budapest, Hungary. He came to the United States when he was six and settled with his family in New York City. He currently lives in Winfield, Pennsylvania with his wife, Anna Beth Payne, a psychologist at a university counseling center. He has two children, Dan, a software engineer in San Francisco, and Rachel, who recently graduated from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and is embarking on a career in New York City. When he isn't working, he likes to sense a sport which he has practiced since high school. John Cater, welcome to Bookends. Hello, Susan. Good to be with you. It's great to be with you. We'll have to talk about the sensing later, something I'm very interested in. <laughs> um, John, in the introduction of your book, you share a little interesting story, um, uh, an exchange, actually, that you had between uh, with a, a CEO um, that you indicated eventually led you to writing this book. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and other observations you've made along the way that perhaps suggested a need for this work? 
Yes, it's it's rare for an author to be able to point to a specific incident as the origin of a book, but I can. A um, software company executive had called me in for a, a speech. He, his company had gotten into trouble, and he wanted a way to worm his way out of it, and I suggested that maybe the best solution would be to um, admit the error and uh, apologize. And he bristled, actually bristled at me, and he said, John, I never apologize. I'm sorry. That's just the kind of guy I am. <laughs> and in that little contradiction there, that inflexive, the reflexive defensiveness, I saw a need for a, a book about apology, especially in the business world. Well, it's just absolutely amazing that, that he could get to the top of an organization with that kind of a philosophy. Um, yes, and he, by the way, he's no longer at the top of that organization. Well, there you go. <laughs> now, yeah. now, you know, just in your observations, uh, you know, about, you know, things that are happening in the news and in the world, you know, or, or, did, did you feel somehow that the timing of this book, you know, that this was really the time to, to write this particular book? Yeah, I think the market actually caught up with me. I had, I had proposed this book, oh, maybe 10 years ago, and um, most uh, all the publishers I approached turned it down. So it's only recently that the publishers saw a need for the book, um, and um, I think that's due to a number of, of factors. We can get into that later yeah. if you want. Well, um, you, you head off concerns in the book. I'm, I'm sure that some people are a bit skeptical when they uh, see the title of your book, and right away they start thinking about how you know an apology really admits that they've done some wrong, and that would, for some people... Um, create some fears about litigation, and I think you do a, a good job of, of um, you know, kind of heading off that right away in the book and putting some of these fears to rest for people who might worry about legal implications in making apologies, you know, even for people, for example, in the medical profession. Could you talk a little bit uh, about this? Is an apology going to lead to legal trouble for us? Quite the contrary. Any fair reading of the facts, I think, demonstrates that a, an effective apology actually diffuses the conditions that lead to lawsuits. Doctors and hospitals have made it clear by real evidence over the last uh, five years that admitting and disclosing error and apologizing is the single best way to reduce litigation costs. And um, that's so for manufacturers and uh, every other organization. In fact, the argument that apology can be used against us in a court of law is is just not borne out by the evidence. Well, that that's really good news, and and um, you certainly you know hope that uh, that organizations, more organizations, will will pay attention to that. Um, in the first chapter, in a section of the book where you uh, you title it "Wholehearted Apology," you write these words um, that just really uh, really struck me. You say. For one instant, you abandon all formulas, answers, beliefs, expectations, and efforts to achieve a predetermined outcome. What remains is self-awareness. I thought that was really a powerful statement. Can you tell us a little bit about the qualities of what you refer to as a wholehearted apology and how this can be transformational for us? Wholehearted apology is just disarming. It disarms yourself and it disarms the victim that you hurt. Um, it 
basically lets go of your need, of the offender's need to have the last word. That's the hardest thing about apology, is apologizing and then not knowing what's going to happen. But um, what I say is that if we can accept who we are in our apology, uh, we have a very good chance of moving the relationship forward. That's what I call transformational. You might have had this in your own experience, and many of your listeners might too, is where you offend somebody that's close to you, maybe a family member or a friend, and you patch it up with an apology and forgiveness, and you find together that the relationship is stronger at the end than it was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's what I mean by transformational apology, where it transforms the relationship and often for the, for the stronger. I thought that was a, a, a powerful part of the, of the book. Is it, is it true that many of us are happy to actually receive an apology even if we suspect it might be poorly motivated? Absolutely, especially when it's an effective apology. That is a complete apology without defensiveness or, or, or buts. Um, we are hungry for apologies. We are hungry to re- repair our relationships, and we are eager to forgive most of us in the face of a, a, a really sympathetic apology. So, yes, yeah, often we are suspicious about the motives of the apologizer. We see that all the time in the news. We say, oh, he's not, she's not really sorry. She's just sorry she got caught. But, in fact, we want the apology, and we can't move on without it. So on, those, on that level, we all are looking for the good apology. Yes, we are. And, you know, think of situations, big situations in the news. Uh, BP oil spill, of course, is something that comes to mind um, still uh, for me and um, how much I wanted to hear the, the, the original CEO who was involved in the process just, just you know, tell us how sorry he was on a personal level. And, of course, what we got was that he was sorry that the incident was taking up so much of his time. <laughs> it was uh, yeah. very disheartening, I think, for many people. Um, it is, and we can note that Tony Hayward, the CEO you're mentioning, is no longer CEO. He's been exactly. replaced. Exactly. The um, inability for, of a, for a leader to apologize effectively is often a career-ending kind of disability. Something to pay attention to, for sure. Um, it, yeah. was, it was really great news to read that apologies are on the rise, um, and, and you describe many of benefits uh, to being on both the giving and the receiving ends of, of the apology. Uh, I was surprised to read about the financial implications of apology for both individuals and businesses providing them. Would you uh, talk about these and share some examples from your, your research? There's lots of ways that apology benefits an organization. Um, we can get into some specifics, but basically what I'm talking about is that the energy an organization would ordinarily use to be defensive and stonewall can be much better used to learn and avoid making the same mistakes. We all know that the the cover-up is worse than the underlying crime. 
apology eliminates that complication from our world. Um, if we apologize and take responsibility for action, we are that much closer to, to learning and avoiding the mistakes and moving forward. And that translates into real money. Um, my book has a study that the Pearl Outlet, a retail mail-order firm that is in Pearls, uh, they did a survey, and just by accident they discovered that uh, their, their customers who tend to apologize actually earn more money than their customers who tend not to apologize. And there's a lot of ways to look at that information, but the way I choose to look at it is that uh, an individual who chooses to apologize just has better relationships across the board. And people with better relationships tend to rise up in organizations, and they tend to, and their salaries tend to reflect that, uh, that rise. So there's a real correlation between the ability to apologize, to take responsibility, and success in basically every dimension of life. It's almost as if... Um in, in our relationship, if you see me as a person who can is willing to be honest with myself about me, the chances that I can be honest and have a deeper um, relationship based on integrity with you are much greater. And, and that the, the apology is almost an, illustra uh, an illustration of my ability to have some integrity about myself and own up to my, my own behavior. I like the way you put that. Um, the way I like to think about it is it's, it's when um, the offender can finally acknowledge that his or her victim not only has good reasons to conclude that, that we are flawed people, we not only agree with that, but we come to accept it of ourselves that, yes, we are flawed. And that's what we are apologizing for, that flaw. And we make a commitment to, to do better next time. And when we, have, when we have that agreement among the offender and the victim, then we can really move forward in a relationship. The recognition of our human condition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Imperfect. Yeah. Just like everybody else. Exactly, exactly. It's a hard place to be. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. You, you share in, in, in your work um, your model, which is, is really five dimensions of effective apology. Uh, and a really good apology will include all of these uh, dimensions. And the first of these is recognition. And uh, you spend a great deal of time, actually, in the book, I think, more on this recognition area, um, which, you know, at first thought, it would seem like this would be the obvious thing to do, but then as you spend some time in this part of the book, you recognize how often this step really actually gets left out. Uh, you offer a number of excellent examples and really great stories. And one, one of these stories was illustrating how difficult this step can really be, and, and you share the story of a, a woman named Rachel uh, Raymond. Would you tell us a little bit about uh, this dimension and share the story of Rachel with us? The recognition step is, is excruciating because it requires us to actually name the offense. It's one thing to say, um, I'm sorry. Another thing to say, I'm, I'm sorry about that. 
but it's quite the quite quite hard sometimes to say I'm sorry for being a liar, or I'm sorry for stealing your idea and taking credit for it. Putting it out there so nakedly is is takes a lot of integrity. So um, the story you mentioned uh, discusses. Um, uh, Rachel Raymond, who's, um, who's now a, a professor, but this is a story about when she was younger, and basically she, when she was in probably preschool, um, she, um, she found a, a book from her doctor grandfather about, um, about sex, you know, some uh, re- reproductive drawings, and uh, she tore the pages out of the book and took it to school and showed her friends, and the teacher caught her. And it was all a big mess, and her mother, Rachel's mother, was called in. And the point of the story is that the principal of the school wanted Rachel's mother to make Rachel apologize. And Rachel's mother wisely asked the principal to specify the offense for which the little girl should apologize. Smart lady. And, yeah, and the and there was no offense, really, at that point, from the school's perspective. The, the pages were innocuous. They were totally correct. And um, there was no offense. In other words, the school had little standing to demand, a, to demand a, an apology. Uh, Rachel did require an apology to somebody, though. It wasn't the principal or the teacher. She was required to produce a, an apology to her grandfather, whose book she violated mm-hmm. by tearing out the pages. That's, uh, so recogni- recognition requires us to be very clear about not only what we did, but who we did it to. I love that story, and, and uh, you told it with a great deal of flair. I just couldn't visualize the whole thing and uh, you know, the, the challenges that the teachers must get in sometimes with uh, what happens in their classrooms. It must be a lot of fun. <laughs> but on, on yeah. a more serious note, uh, a story that illustrates this is an example about the Quran, um, which is found outside of Baghdad. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened um, and, and, and how the military leadership responded to um, this uh, Quran, which actually had been defaced? And this happened late in the war, May 9, 2008, and the military by then had learned a lot about um, uh, Islamic culture and um, how, to, how, how the duty and honor operate in that country. Basically, uh, somebody, one of our soldiers, uh, desecrated a, uh, a Quran, the Muslim holy book, and it was discovered, and of course the Iraqis um, were very upset, as they have a right to be. But here's the good part. Instead of uh, getting defensive and invoking security, the um, military command um, accepted responsibility. It disciplined the soldier at, at fault and um, convened a, um, a, a tribal gathering where the uh, where Major General Jeffrey Hammond, command, commander of the uh, division, you know, began an apology that started 
in the most humble manner, I look into your eyes today and I say, please forgive me and my soldiers. He went on for a few more sentences, but that was the tone of the apology. It was very specific, very effective, and it totally diffused what could have been a very disagreeable situation. The tribal leader, in response, got up and said, in the name of all the sheikhs, we declare we accept the apology that was submitted. I find it a very um, encouraging, encouraging step. It was a beautiful apology and, uh, you know, very heartfelt and uh, surprising, you know, that uh, that it was delivered in, in that manner uh, after the incident, which was, you know, extremely unfortunate. Uh, but to show that sensitivity and, and that common recognition, as you said uh, earlier, uh, you know, the fact that we're all flawed. I mean, we all do stupid things from time to time. And you know, could face each other in the eye and and uh, share yeah. that and move on. Yeah. In the end, what I say is it's not so much what we do that counts, but what we do about what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I know um, many of us, and myself included, are, are sometimes tempted to utilize an explanation in an uh, apology that we might be delivering. Why is this usually a bad idea, and is there ever a time that it's appropriate? I think there's a time and place for explanations, but it's not at the time of the apology. And, and the reason is that I don't know a single person in this world who is capable of delivering an explanation that does not devolve into excuses. So rather than take that risk, I say, let the, let the explanations be for another time. There is a time for explanations, but let it be for another time. It would, uh, at, at, at the time you offer the apology, an explanation would almost certainly diminish the apology's effectiveness. You're, you're really starting to get into um, the whole area of responsibility, which actually is the next dimension of apology in your model. And um, you open the chapter on explanation with uh, an apology that was offered by John Edwards uh, to the American people, um, you know, after it became, after he owned up to the fact that he had been having an affair. Uh, Would you share his example with us and discuss what went wrong with John Edwards' apology? A lot went wrong with John Edwards' apology, but actually on the responsibility front, I think he did okay. Uh, he started his apology. This is um, this is um, in nineteen in two thousand six. Um, he says in two thousand six, two years ago, I made a very serious mistake, a mistake that I am responsible for and no one else. Um, and then he goes on. Um, so on the responsibility front, he's he's doing well. Um, what he's what he's, his apology is not so good on is the recognition. He doesn't talk about. He that doesn't specify exactly what he's he's re- apologizing for. Was this the so, one where he was using the word "it" rather than actually naming the actual act in, in his apology? Yeah, exactly. He says at the end, "I am responsible for it. I alone am responsible for it." So we can be thankful that he's not diffusing re- personal responsibility. But I would have asked him to talk about what the it is in this sense. In this case, it's an extramarital affair. 
have you actually, you know, I, I, and I know we're going to talk about this at the very end, but while we're here, and you said I would have told him, um, you have probably had the opportunity to coach people like John Edwards in the delivery of an effective apology. Is that correct? That is correct. I, I can tell you that in most cases my coaching has been rejected, but really, that's another story. <laughs> oh. Okay, well, we'll talk about that some more in a little bit. <laughs> Re- yeah. Remorse is, is the next element in, in the model. Can you tell us a little bit about um, this element and, and share uh, an example, um, you know, one one of the examples uh, that you share in the book is um, Marshwin Lynch, uh, who was a Buffalo's Bill running back, and he was involved in a hit-and-run accident. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, this element and um, uh, Marshwin's uh, uh, story? Yeah, on July 4, 2008, um, Marshwin Lynch uh, hit a 27-year-old uh, uh, woman named Kimberly Shepley, and um, instead of uh, stopping and rendering aid, he drove off, and um, he was convicted and um, paid a fine, and um, his first apology was very passive, and uh, he, 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 he said, I am sorry that Miss Shepley was struck and injured, as if she, you know, someone else struck and injured her. Um, and then he, his apology went on, please know that I was completely unaware that my car had made contact with anyone. You know, this kind of, of language is passive, it's abstract, it, it's not very persuasive and not very effective. And in fact, it, it was rejected um, until he cleaned up his apology a little bit more. And uh, in my book, I actually offered some wording that I would have crafted for uh, Marshawn Lynch. Um, and it starts off, uh, Miss Shepley, I was the driver of the car that struck and injured you. To my everlasting shame, I left the scene. And it went on like that. Notice how the uh, I, you know, the I language takes over and it becomes active verbs instead of passive verbs. And that's what's required for an effective apology. Ownership and active active responsibility. And just listening to that example and you know, the way he delivered it and the way you delivered it, when you know, when you read what your recommendation was, you just immediately feel the power in that statement. You you kind of feel even though you're the injured person, you you sort of melt into the statement and, and um you know, you could feel the potential for reconciliation and healing yeah. in, in those very active uh, type statements that, that you just described. Can an apology be effective without restitution? Uh, um, can you share, for example, the very creative restitution offered by a man named Mike who acted very inappropriately at a company event? Could you tell us a little bit about what happened and and uh, what he did, and then talk to us just a little bit about this idea of restitution. Yeah, restitution is the part of the apology that corrects the uh, offense. Um, often it can take the form of, of money or a concrete item, for example. Susan, if I borrow your cell phone and lose it, 
then no apology to you is complete without me replacing your cell phone, either buying you a new cell phone or giving you the money to do so. Um, but what happens when we offend somebody that does, doesn't have a monetary equivalent? What do we do? So here in this story, I, tr I told a, a story about a, um, about a guy, a business guy, who violates corporate culture by uh, dressing inappropriately, dressing formally for a, uh, an informal activity that he was asked to be informal for. And um, the whole thing doesn't end well uh, for a while. Uh, he gets um, offended and insults the audience, and he finally decides to come back and apologize. And how does he apologize? Uh, remember, he was overdressed the first time. And in fact, he comes back the next day equally overdressed. But this time, instead of uh, saying a word, he um, carefully surveyed the room, making eye contact with as many people as possible. And then without a word, he stepped back and he slowly untied his necktie and placed it on a chair. Then he took off his suit jacket and let it slide to the floor. <laughs> and then, only then, did he come back to the microphone and speak. Yesterday, he said, I was rude. I did not understand what this meeting was about. And that was my mistake. My behavior was wrong, and I have affected your process. I am deeply sorry for what I have said and done. I apologize sincerely for the hurt that I have caused. If my apology is not good enough, I am going to lay down on the stage, and you can walk on me. <laughs> oh, I just of love course. that. Of course, it's the gesture yes. of, of being humble. Exactly. That was his restitution. Yeah. Of yeah. course, the audience rose to their feet in applause and support. Uh, this was a guy who finally got it. Yeah. And yeah. he was with them. That's the effect of a good apology. It brings people together. Powerful story. So so much fun. And, uh, you know, here is a situation where you can't really purchase anything to make it right. It's just been your behavior. And uh, how creative uh, a way to, um, to bring everything back together and offer yeah. restitution. Just a great example. So, some people may be haunted by an event for years and eventually offer a delayed apology. Is this a good idea? Not always. A delayed apology, an apology that, that's delivered years or even decades after the event it speaks to can be very problematic. Here's the test that I uh, ask readers to apply. Is the um, apology more about compassion for the victim, or is it more about redemption for yourself? If, if it's the latter, for example, if you're feeling bad about an affair you had many years ago, it's worth thinking about whether, whether an apology would create complications that you don't want and would actually hurt the victim. In that case, the apology is about redemption for yourself. Then what you do is you write the letter but never mail it or go to your priest or rabbi and confess, um, but don't involve the victim. On the other hand, if, it's, if you decide with some counsel. It's not something I think you can do alone. If you 
deliberate and decide that the victim would really like the um, the apology and benefit from it, then by all means, put it in writing and send it out. It's probably the best way to do it. Yeah. Do you have any, any examples that come to mind uh, on a delayed apology uh, where things either worked out or didn't work out um, as, as, as hoped? <laughs> well, there was. Uh, I have a couple of stories of, of both kinds, uh, uh-huh. delayed apologies that did work out and delayed apologies that backfired. Um, which one would you prefer? Your choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a... Um, a story in my book about a, uh, two friends named Harvey and Nick who were really tight friends, and um, they were very close to each other's families and really more like brothers. Um, and then when one of the friends died in a, a uh, airplane crash, uh, the other friend just lost contact with his friend's family and, and had a really lot of guilt about it. Um, and um, the friend finally decided to write this very nice letter uh, to the to, to the family of his former friend, and it started. I am sorry for my silence all these years. Yeah. After Nick's death, I thought I was alone, and so I was. I'm filled with remorse to think that my absence added even the slightest weight to the burden you were already carrying. And. Um, he went, he went on in the letter to say that he himself now is happy with a good job and a wife. I hardly deserve, he says. My brightest news I save for last. I have a son. He's three years old, and his name is Nick. So that's the kind of letter that you can write with some confidence that it's about compassion for the victim. Really great. I, I love that story. Let, let's talk for a moment about gifts. Is it ever appropriate to offer a gift when you apologize? Not in this culture. Um, apology is culture-specific, and in Western culture, I think it's a big mistake. In Asian cultures, it's more accepted. Um, here's what I say about gift-giving and apology. In, in business circles, it's never ap- appropriate. It's always seen as a bribe uh, gift, that is. Um, but even in social settings, it can be problematic. We apologize often and bring flowers, um, and that that can work. Um, but uh, except for that combination, I I'd say make the apology so effective that you don't need a gift. What are your thoughts, John? Um, you know, when I was reading this part of the book, I was thinking a little bit about. You know, a customer service situation, and what I'd refer to as service recovery, where uh, you know an organization has just fallen down when it comes to providing the quality or the level of service that they'd really like to, and um, so they decide to reach out to the customer and offer a sincere apology with some little token, you know, of something maybe related to the services or products that they sell is would you would you feel in that instance when it's not maybe something personal to personal but maybe corporate to personal would the would the gift be perceived in the wrong way or do you think there's a time that that might be appropriate 
Certainly appropriate. All, all I ask you to do is think of it as a token of restitution. It's not a gift anymore. Okay. It is the corporation's gesture that they've, did, that they've done wrong, that their customer has suffered a, um, a setback, and they are, um, are balancing the uh, equation by uh, offering this token of restitution, whether it's a free you know, free month of service or a new camera or whatever it is, it's part of the restitution. You also offer some really great tips for accepting apologies, and uh, you suggest that we say, I, I accept your apology, and then stop. Why do you offer us this advice? It's the flip side to the advice about uh, not offering ex- explanations. Uh, accept, what does an accept, accepting an apology mean? Accepting an apology means that we are willing to not mention the offense again, as long as the offender is in good behavior. That's all that accepting an apology means. It doesn't mean we forget it. It means we're not going to bring it up unless the offender does something and reoffends. So. On one level, when you accept the apology, the subject should be over. You know, let's move on. On, on another level, uh, what are you going to say? What can you say at that point after saying, I accept your apology? What can you say that would make the conversation go better? Yeah, it's really over. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's it's necessary for us to reject an apology. Um, there's times where, uh, you know, it really may damage us on a personal level to uh, to accept an apology. I thought you had a really powerful uh, illustration. Uh, it was about a Gucci handbag, and um, I thought it was a good, you know, example of one of those kinds of times. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that that particular story and? Offer us some tips for times where we might need to reject someone's apology. Sometimes an apology is so defective, so manifestly insincere that there's no way to accept it. Um, The story you're referring to um, describes uh, uh, a woman who borrowed a, a Gucci handbag from a friend and then basically... The Gucci handbag and replace it with a, um, you know, a counterfeit, a knockoff, um, and then then the the friend was caught and tried to apologize by uh, uh, returning the money that she had required from selling the Gucci handbag. Now this is such an egregious violation; it's basically stealing from a friend, and the uh, offender had was clueless about what she was what she was apologizing for and she thought actually thought that by returning the money she was going to balance the equation so in that sense i counsel that victim there to say no this is not an acceptable apology you don't get why i am so offended wow really uh, a difficult situation and, uh, you know, a reminder that uh, that we don't have to accept an apology that's just, as you say, deficient. 
that um, you know we're we're really um, you know in a sense uh, giving uh, giving uh, up you know what we're entitled to um, in the relationship and um, just allowing uh, people to um, to walk all over us and and not learn from the situation themselves. Exactly right. And then there's a provisional rejection, which is to say. Uh, um, I may accept your apology, but right now I'm not over it. I'm not ready to accept your apology right now. Give me more time. And that's always acceptable. You don't need to accept an apology on the offender's terms. You can accept a rejected apology on your own timetable. Yeah, and I think that there's probably a lot of situations where you just need to think about it, that you've been hurt really deeply, and um, and that's very appropriate. And, and certainly, yeah. you know, hopefully the offender would, um, you know, um, honor that situation. I think so. Well, in, in, in the beginning of our, our time uh, today, uh, you discussed what, what we called the wholehearted apology. And in the book, you offer two other types of apologies. Um, in a section on which that are called half-hearted apologies, you write half. You, you say, and I'm quoting here, half-hearted apologies add insult to injury. It's actually worse than offering no apology at all. For in the guise of offering healing, it redoubles the offense. And then. Um, you, you counsel, of course, the apologizer to offer their apology and then to shut up. We talked about accepting an apology and, and stopping. And this is the flip side of that where you are counseling the apologizer to offer their apology and then be silent. Could you talk about that for, for a little with us? Why would that be? Well, half-hearted apologies sound like apologies, but if you think about them even for a minute, you find that they're not. The, the classic example is, um, uh, I'm sorry if your feelings were hurt. This is, it feels like an apology, but it's not. It's uh, basically blaming ye, the victim for having feelings, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. So that kind of apology just, like I say, adds insult to injury. It makes the situation worse. It's better not to attempt to apologize at all than to blame the victim. Um, the other uh, formulas where that happens is anything that starts off, I'm sorry, but. You know, I'm, I apologize, but you started it. <laughs> you know, or I apologize, but you didn't have to be so sensitive. Or I apologize, but everyone was doing it. It's still the None of the conversations will, will make the situation better. And, and you're blaming the victim. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The apology has the feeling of a apologetic statement, but it is actually a redoubling the offense. What, what about um, you know telling the the apologizer to offer their apology and and then stop? Would would you speak to that? Um, you know, we talked about accepting apology and stopping, but what about offering the apology and then? stopping. Why would you make that recommendation? Well, I guess it's rare, but sometimes you get the feeling that, uh, you know, the person who offended you really does want to apologize and doesn't quite know how, and most of us don't have very good training in how to apologize. So um, it's okay to take a little control of the situation and say, I get it. Good enough, you know. Yeah. We don't need to talk about it anymore. Um, 
Well, John, you mentioned a little earlier in our conversation, and, and to kind of wrap up our time with you today, I'd like to come back to this. Uh, I talked about, um, you know, perhaps the counsel that you've offered, you know, even some high-profile people, um, uh, you know, uh, that have been in, you know, ugly situations where they really needed to deliver a, a very well-thought-through, um, heartfelt um, apology. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you could support organizations or uh, individuals who might be in need of your services and, um, uh, you know, some of the kinds of things that, that you could do to help? Sure. I, um, I'm always happy to consult with, uh, with organizations and individuals who, have, um, who are in crisis. This is, apology, in this sense, is a component of, of crisis management. Um, the, beep, the British Petroleum oil leak you mentioned is a, a crisis management situation of which apology is a small, small part. Um, so there are groups out there that provide training uh, for, let's say, doctors and hospitals on how to apologize effectively. And, and um, there are um, lots of resources out there for people who want to um, get past their reflexive defensiveness and, and practice effective apology. And I'm happy to be part of that, um, that kind of resource. I hope my book, you know, advances the, the conversation on this subject. That's, that, that's my big hope. Well, certain that it does. I, you know, I shared with you uh, prior to the interview that I, you know, it was the first book that I had encountered that addressed this topic, which you're absolutely right, John. Uh, you know, we've not had training in how to do this effectively. And, um, you know, there's just, your book is full of examples of, you know, really unfortunate apologies and also really powerful apologies. And as you read the book, you can just feel the difference, uh, you know, between doing it effectively and, you know, ineffectively. Um, and I hope that people will take the time to, um, to read your book, I think it's an important work, and uh, certainly today there have been uh, so many opportunities um, for for organizations and individuals to make apologies, and oftentimes those opportunities have been missed. You know, so uh, sad for all of us, uh, but it happens. Um, so I'd like to encourage people to um, to purchase your book, and I wanted to remind uh, folks listening that to get a copy of Effective Apology, uh, you can simply go to effectiveapology.com. And uh, also, following our interview today, uh, we invite you to join this conversation on transformation by visiting uh, LinkedIn and joining the, uh, the group, which is called Bookends the Discussion. And you can pose questions for John, who will join us in the discussion, and invite your colleagues and peers as well. You'll also find a link to the recording of today's interview, and you can share it with others. You can re-listen yourself. So once again, John, we really appreciate your time and your expertise and your good work around this important but difficult skill. Apologizing. Thanks so much for being with us today. Great, Susan. I enjoyed it. Bye-bye now. 